What's the Point is brought to you by The Black Tux, the best way to rent the perfect suit or tux for a wedding or special event right online. You can visit theblacktux.com slash point and they'll set you up. That's theblacktux.com slash point. At the heart of the work you're doing then, I guess, is this premise that people tend to do crimes close to home. If you want to understand the uh, spatial patterns of a criminal, you probably wouldn't be far off if you look at the spatial patterns of a shopper. They're not fundamentally different than the rest of us. In fact, that's one of the tourisms that criminals for 95% of their life behave just the same as anyone else does. It's What's the Point from 538. My name is Jody Avergan. Today, we'll meet a criminologist who has developed a way to use geographic data to help hone in on serial criminals. And now he thinks that that same method can be used to help us figure out who the anonymous street artist Banksy is. It's a method that goes actually beyond just crimes. It can kind of help us understand all sorts of behavioral patterns in humans and animals. We'll talk to him in a minute, but first, as always, a number that caught our eye this week. It's the significant digit. Can I tell you a number? Sure. The number is, it's a little complicated, we'll get there. The number is 14, which is, uh, there's this group of researchers nerds, basically. Okay. Uh, and four times a day, they gather 14 gigabytes of weather data, and they put it into a model that they have developed that helps predict whether the sunset is going to be pretty or not. Okay. It sounds very useless. <laughs> what? <laughs> I think I agree. What is that information for? Well, don't you like sunsets? Yeah. Everyone likes sunsets. I mean, yeah, but I'm not going like, to plan my day around it. You know, you see it, it's nice, you don't, you keep it moving. So I'd rather wait to see if it happens. Let's get a little more context on uh, sunset data, which is, I guess, now for a week at least your beat, huh, Ollie Rader? Welcome it's, to uh, welcome back to What's the Point? You've been on the show before, but welcome. Thank you, Jody. Always good to be here. And uh, yeah, that's been my life for the past week or so. It's sunset data, which is now officially on the map so to speak they do they do make a map um so we'll talk about that but we mentioned 14 gigs of data fetched four times a day what exactly is the data that goes into creating a a map of where good sunsets are going to be so these guys a, a trio of guys at penn state uh operating under the name sunset wx and wx is shorthand for weather um basically scrape uh NOAA, the national Oceanographic and Atmospheric Association's weather data, something called the four-kilometer NAM. Because are really bringing acronyms back to the sunset. Game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, at, at long last. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, they they scrape fourteen gigabytes of data four times a day um, and put it through uh, a proprietary algorithm, all with an eye toward the sunset, specifically toward predicting where in the country and indeed where around the world one can expect to see uh, an especially beautiful uh, sunset. And this is not just NOAA data though, right? Don't they corroborate it with some more anecdotal stuff? Yeah, so the, the inputs are the NOAA data and in order to sort of calibrate their model, uh, they turn to social media, that most sort of trite of social media post, the sunset photo. Uh, so every night for a few hours, uh, these three guys basically 
trawl Twitter looking for sunset photos, and they'll see, you know, an especially beautiful sunset is coming from, say, Brooklyn, and they'll go look at their model and see if it spit out, you know, a good sunset for Brooklyn, and, and if it did, their model would be verified, and if not, they'll kind of go back and tweak it, and that's sort of how they've arrived at, at the calibrations um, that they're using now. And so how does this actually get used? You, in theory, could go to the map... And it will say the use. The original use was for photographers. So uh, Jacob DeFlitch, one of the creators uh, of the of this program, uh, is a landscape photographer, and, and he liked taking pictures of beautiful sunsets, but essentially didn't want to waste his time trekking over to his favorite spots if you know the sunset wasn't going to be great. But I think it's sort of why you know. Uh, the sabermetrician who also likes spending an evening at at the baseball game, right? It's sort of it's it's just another level of information that can sort of you know complement the, the natural beauty of sunsets. And did you learn anything about what makes for a good sunset? So I'm told that this so there's a lot of inputs to the model: pressure, uh, humidity, cloud cover, and I'm told the how many most, beers you've had. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, who you're the company, yeah. uh, the setting. Um, I'm told that the single most important thing is our high clouds. Uh, so high clouds refract the sunlight, creating all the pretty colors, and they also act as sort of a movie screen onto which that light is projected so, so that we can see it. Um, there is a big missing piece to this model, um, which is what's called aerosol data. So basically stuff in the air. So that might be ozone or, or smoke from a forest fire or pollution. Right. They talk about L.A. having good sunsets because of all the smog. Yeah. And last summer, I think it was, there were big Canadian wildfires that made beautiful sunsets as far south as D.C. Aren't, not to get too philosophical, but like aren't let's sunsets. Get really, really let's get philosophical. For like 15 seconds. Yeah. Though. Aren't sunsets supposed to, like, surprise us? Isn't that a big part of it? Yeah, I think, you know, after we published our article, I got some feedback on Twitter saying exactly exactly that. And I think, you know, this is a strictly opt-in. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> if you want to be surprised... Uh, there aren't going to be push still, alerts or uh, layered over the uh, over the air, right? Ollie Rader. Uh, people can go see uh, his piece on the site, but thanks for thanks for joining can see us. See the sunset tonight. Around hey, do you have a roof? Because I can't even see the sun. But if I can come over to your roof, uh, I don't have a roof, but I'm on the sixth floor, and I have a very nice uh, west facing window in my kitchen, Jody. So right, we well, can come over and have some snacks. When there's a good forecast, text me, and I'll come over. Sounds good. The street artist Banksy is everywhere, and he's also, of course, nowhere. He is anonymous. His real identity has been a mystery for decades. There's been all sorts of theories and suspects being floated and then shot down. Dozens of people have claimed to be Banksy, only to later be disproved. But the latest theory, and one that's generally accepted as maybe the most credible theory ever, is that Banksy is a man named Robin Gunningham. We don't know that much about Robin Gunningham. He's 42. He's from Bristol, England, and he went to Catholic prep school there. But a year-long investigation by the Daily Mail, which talked to Gunningham's friends and family and traced his whereabouts over the last decade, concluded that he was the most likely suspect. 
The investigation started with a contemporary picture of what is thought to be Banksy, the only one that's kind of floating around. And then the Daily Mail went to Bristol and began honing in on suspects and found their way to Gunningham and his past. They spoke with his classmates who knew the kind of art he made in school. They spoke to Gunningham's family and they started to corroborate his known addresses and trips with where Banksy had done work, police records of graffiti arrests and so on and so forth. The Daily Mail published their findings a few years ago, and now there's one more arrow in the Gunningham is Banksy quiver. And that's the use of an algorithm that looks at patterns of events according to geographic location. When you match those patterns to what we already know about Gunningham from other investigations, he becomes an even more likely suspect. Kim Rossimo, a professor at Texas State University, developed this algorithm, and recently he and his colleagues published their research about Banksy in the Journal of Spatial Science, which I'm sure you all subscribe to. And it's worth making one thing clear, which Rossimo will make clear as well. His research deals in probabilities. It adds a mathematical argument to the Daily Mail's more anecdotal work. Together, they make a case for Gunningham, but again, it's just an argument. We probably won't ever know for sure who Banksy is unless someone credibly confesses. But Dr. Rossimo's work is about much more than Banksy. It's about spatial analysis and other kinds of crimes and patterns. So here is my conversation with him. Dr. Kim Rossimo, thank you for joining us. Welcome to 538. Good afternoon. So one question for you right off the bat. Do you actually care who Banksy is? No, not really. Uh, This was a, a scientific experiment um, and we uh, thought it would be interesting, uh, but uh, whether Banksy is Robin Gunningham or, or anyone else is, is really irrelevant to our larger purposes. I'll admit that I actually don't really care. I'm talking to you mostly because of the process of how you tried to answer this question. But I also think just as a, a fan or a sort of appreciator of art that there's a role for anonymity. And I, I just kind of roll my eyes sometimes at the at the hunt for who he is. So I know this isn't exactly your field, but I wonder whether like does this guy deserve to be unmasked in some way? Um, no. Um, you have to realize that when you put works of art on public buildings or buildings that you don't own, technically committing a crime, because yep. that's what graffiti is, you kind of lose your right to anonymity. It's very different than, you know, say an author working under a pseudonym or something like that. So he doesn't have any right to anonymity, either from the police or, or from other people. One of the reasons, uh, let's be honest, one of the reasons he's so famous is, is because of the mystery surrounding his name. So he is in, enjoying that aspect as well. But he Um, I think it's hypocritical of him to expect to have his cake and eat it, too. Let's go into the process of how you and your colleagues sort of tried to tackle this problem. So so first, can you kind of um, maybe describe other attempts to figure out who Banksy is? I mean, has it mostly until you came along been about rumors and innuendo? Has anyone tried to take this kind of more scientific approach? I don't believe so, but there was some investigative journalism done – I believe by the Daily Mail in the United Kingdom. And when we set about doing this, we first of all wanted to look at all the viable 
Banksy suspects and compare them, because that's what you would do in a criminal case. You would have a number of suspects, say, you know, every known sex offender in a community in a, in a rape, and that number could be hundreds or, or thousands or even tens of thousands. And the role of geographic profiling is suspect prioritization. But in this case, it turns out that there is only one reasonable suspect uh, for Banksy, Robin Gunningham, and a few people claiming to be Banksy, but um, you know, it's, it's quite clear that those claims are, are nonsense. So what we were limited to doing is rather than prioritizing a list, just taking a look at one person. But what we could still do is see how that person compared, and we could get some sense of was he a good fit or was he an average fit, or was he a poor fit, and he ended up being a, um, a very, very good fit, and not just in London but also in Bristol. So that kind of you know compounds the the level of confidence in the findings. Now, a lot of media have picked up on this and said, we've proved he's Banksy. And that's, that's not true. All we've done is add more evidence to the theory that Gunningham is Banksy. But we haven't proved anything. What you're getting at is, I think, a, something that has come up a number of times on this show when I've talked about, well, almost any sort of data work, but especially in, in criminal justice, which is your sample size is not the entire population, right? You are starting from a limited sample size and then trying to find your matches within that. But you're kind of saying that you almost started from a sample size, a database of one. Were you concerned or how did you sort of think about the the potential confirmation biases that would come into effect there when you just kind of already have a, a suspect in mind? I, I would disagree with some of the terminology you're using because we're not mm-hmm. doing inferential statistics. We're not working from a, a sample to a population um, in that sort of classic sense. What we've done is we've said, you know, how good a match is this particular person to the locations of the crimes, and and then give a you know some sort of sense of comparison to what we've seen in prior research and and um, uh, uh, experience, and we find he's a good match, very good match. Now, if we were to take a look, for sake of argument, at ten thousand suspects, mm-hmm. we might find you know a couple hundred people better than. Uh, Robin Gunningham. But you have to also factor in what I believe was the Daily Mail found in terms of all the other factors that made him a suspect. So it's really about combining all the evidence, um, and I'm a Bayesian, so I like to combine them all in terms of Bayesian probability, and you get some sense of, you know, who you should be looking at. But, you know, we're not, it's never going to be proved unless he confesses or someone catches him in the act, um, and, and we're not holding our breath about that. So that's why we said, right. know, he's a good fit, but we're not saying he is Banksy. So let's talk about the process. It starts with geography, right? You're doing a geographic analysis. So explain step one and, and what you end up with in order to draw tighter and tighter geographic circles. First step is, can you link things together? In the case of Banksy, um, we looked at Banksy's own website, plus a couple of uh, uh, books on him, came up with 192 locations in London and Bristol um, that were felt to be his work. And then um, we went to uh, the lead researcher on it. Uh, Michelle went out to visit the sites, um, geocode the locations. She could only find 140 of them. Some had been torn down or weren't accurately reported. So that's what we use for the analysis. But, you know, Banksy is very distinctive. With someone as distinctive as Banksy, it's, it's not difficult. If somebody was breaking into cars 
and they break the window where everyone has to, you know, then you can't really establish a linkage with any um, certainty. So, Meaning you were confident that all the data points in this were actually Banksy's? Yes, we we were, or, or at least a vast majority of them. One of the advantages of the algorithm we use is it's quite robust. So if we had some locations that were inaccurate, it wouldn't make much of a difference in, in the actual result. So step one is the linkage. Step two is we um, have the addresses and locations of the events we're interested in, and we geocode them and put them into a, um, a computer system. You want to get them into the computer, and the computer knows where they are on the globe. So your latitude and your longitude are your address. Once we've done that, then we might do some scenarios. Let's say we weren't certain some crimes are connected or we wanted to see is there a difference between weekend or weekday patterns or however we want to play around with it. Well, we usually play around with it a little bit to look at it from different perspectives. But at the end of the day, we're going to produce a color map that's going to show through a scale of colors, starting with a dark red working down to gray, where the person you're looking for is most likely based. And by based, that's typically their home, but, but not always. So at the heart of the the work you're doing then, I guess, is this premise that people tend to do crimes close to home. If you want to understand the uh, spatial patterns of a criminal, you probably wouldn't be far off if you look at the spatial patterns of a shopper. They're not fundamentally different than the rest of us. In fact, that's one of the tourisms, um, that criminals for 95% of their life behave just the same as anyone else does. Now, if someone's going out to commit an offense, they want to operate in an area of familiarity because they're engaged in risky behavior. If they make a mistake, they could be seen by a witness or caught by the police. And so what you have is a desire to work in their comfort zone, but at the same time, they don't want to commit a crime on their own doorstep in most cases. And remember, we're dealing with probabilities here, not certainties. So that means that um, nothing is you know, 100%, but we can describe it with a probability distribution. And if we take what I've just been telling you and put it into a mathematical description, a probability distribution showing probability of committing a crime by distance from the offender's home. And if, we, if I was to describe that to you, I would say it looks very much like a volcano with a caldera and you take a cross section of it. So as you move further from the offender's home in the beginning, the probability starts to go up, then peaks, and then drops off with distance um, ending up, you know, basically at zero. The probability isn't right outside this person's doorstep. They move a little bit away, but then that's the highest is a sort of ring that's, a, I don't know, a small distance away. At the end of the day, we're taking a, a grid of 40,000 pixels and giving each pixel a probability value. And, and that's what a geoprofile ultimately is. We may use colors or we may use height, but each point represents probability. So in a typical case study, kind of which direction would this work from? Would you take a bunch of crimes, make a map, and then look for the patterns? Or would you 
take a suspect and test them against the geospatial analysis. You work from the crimes. The profile is based on the locations of the crimes, and then suspects are evaluated against the profile. I know that you said it was different for different kinds of crime or different criminals, but in, let's say in the case of Banksy, or if you want to give another example, are we talking about someone is comfortable going two blocks from their home or miles from their home? I mean, how big are these, these circles of, and these patterns? Well, if I spoke generally, the research in what's called journey to crime finds that most offenders commit their crimes one to two miles from their home. Now, it varies for um, a number of factors, you know, such as the age of the offender or the, um, the gender, the type of crime. Um, but uh, we would say most cases the crimes are close. They're closer for violent crimes than they are for property crimes. And there is a you know, this research has been done for a number of years in a number of different countries. So the patterns are very consistent. And uh, that's what we use as our basis for trying to work backwards from the crime sites to determine what the origin of those um, attacks or crimes or graffiti occurred. Do those patterns differ across different cultures? Um, I mean, to a certain extent, you'll see things that are very specific in certain places. So, for example, I worked on a serial murder case in Johannesburg, South Africa, and they have these big mine dumps, um, which are literally hills that are, are um, stuff that's been dug up from the ground and just left in the middle of the city from the mining. And the offender was using those for observation points. Um, mm. If you want to go to the Netherlands, many rapists use bicycles because that's how most people travel as well. Um, so it becomes, you know, it's less about the culture than it is about the actual environment of the city and whether the offender is walking, taking the bus, uh, which is rare, um, driving. Uh, if you're dealing with crimes in Los Angeles, almost everyone drives, and you have to factor in the freeway system. But I would say that variation just within the United States is, is quite great in you know, moving outside of the United States. You don't get much more complexity than you just would see between, say, New York City with the subway system in or Los Angeles with their um, highway system. We'll get back to that conversation in a minute. But first, What's the Point is brought to you by The Black Tux, which lets you rent a tuxedo or suit for a special event right online. So I'm reading this script about The Black Tux on my laptop in one browser tab. And in another browser tab, I have open my Google Calendar. And more and more that calendar is getting filled with summer weddings. It is that time of year. Every week, a new wedding invitation seems to come in. Well, at the Black Tux, weddings are their thing. If you've ever been in a wedding party, you know how hard it is to coordinate tuxedos or suits. It can be a real hassle. You all have to visit the same spot. You have to go for a bunch of fittings. Maybe you have to haggle with the store over price. So this is where the Black Tux comes in. All you have to do is visit theblacktux.com where you can select from full outfits that are already there and built for you or you can go piece by piece and build your own. There are all sorts of options and you will look good in all of them. There are super formal tuxes, there are black suits, gray suits, you can do a bow tie and vest if that's your thing. You also fill out information about your preferred fit and sizing and once you fill that out your suit will arrive seven days or more before your event, which leaves plenty of time to try it on. And you can work with the Black Tux if you need to get it tweaked or altered to make sure you're looking your best. 
Once the event is over, you just put the suit back in the box, send it back to the Black Tux. Shipping is free both ways. So take a moment now and cross what it could potentially be one annoying thing off your list. It won't be annoying anymore if you go to theblacktux.com slash point. It's super easy. Just go to theblacktux.com slash point. If you use that URL, they will know that this podcast sent you. Okay, back to the show. So this is all very high tech, but it also strikes me as like incredibly old school in many ways. I mean, every crime movie ever has like that scene where someone stands in front of a map that's full of pins and looks for patterns. Absolutely. And uh, uh, I've I've tried to collect examples of those when I could find (laughs) them, both in fiction and nonfiction. So all we've done is sort of formalize the process. It's based on theory and hard statistics. We've tested it in... We are um, able to give a much more, I guess, scientific focus. We also, there's wrinkles that often aren't discussed in um, a movie version of this. So I'll give you an example. Let's say somebody is a rapist and he's attacking women who are walking home from pubs, which is very common in England, by the way. So is the crime site the important thing there, or is it where the offender first encounters the victim? Well, it's actually the latter. So you'd want to back the analysis up to the pubs that the offender was following the victims from. So this is an example where the theory and the understanding of the offender hunting behavior allows us to be more accurate than just looking at the pins on the map in the first instance. So let's get back to your analysis of Banksy. And I just wonder why an artist would behave in the same way that, you know, some of the other criminals you know, an artist who wants his work to be as visible as possible and maybe someone who knows that people are on the lookout for him, wouldn't he break with that kind of comfortable geographic pattern and, and expand and maybe be a little less predictable? Well, if you think about where you live and then if I were to ask you what's going on two miles away from where you live, you probably have no idea. Um, you'd have a few select spots you would know of, particularly those on busy roads. But Most people don't have a great knowledge beyond a few blocks from their home. So he can get a lot of anonymity very, very quickly. Plus, he's got to choose sites. And if he's already got some knowledge, general knowledge of an area, he's got a better idea of where to find locations. Um, Some cases, I'm sure he's gone much further than other cases. But, you know, he can be caught no matter where he is if someone sees him. So that's, you know, probably his biggest risk rather than being identified. And many if you look at videos that have been taken of people doing graffiti, they often, you know, wear a hoodie or mask themselves up some way. So the, the bottom line is graffiti artists, um, burglars, car thieves, um, many of these individuals behave in the same fashion in terms of their search for targets or their, their hunt for crime opportunities. So you, you've mentioned this person's name a few times, but let's talk about the suspect that you honed in on and where you feel like your work landed. So tell us a little bit about uh, Robin Gunningham. I don't really know anything about him other than... <laughs> other than he showed up on your map, right? Yeah, he, like I say, he was the only viable suspect we could find. Um, and he has associations to both Bristol and um, London, uh, which where a lot of the Banksy stuff shows up. But, but you know, like who he is, I, I don't know how much anyone really knows about him. No one has been able to really talk to him since the Daily Mail identified him as, a, as, as Banksy, um, whether they're accurate or not. But he certainly is... He in and of himself is somewhat of a mystery, whether he's Banksy or not. And he is kind of considered among, I don't know, what do you call them, Banksyologists, the the most likely suspect. Um, Have you heard anything back from Banksy's team or 
I haven't, but um, Queen Mary University may have, since they're the one that um, put out the press release about the study. But didn't Banksy's people kind of get in touch and try and stop a little bit of this of this process? Did I not read that correctly? Um, no, um, I think they had a concern from what, again, you'd have to ask Queen Mary, because this right. had, um, I didn't have anything to do with this, but I think they had a concern about the press release. Yeah, and, and it does look like Banksy's lawyers were a little concerned with the sort of the way the press release may be honed in on this one suspect as... Yeah, I uh, myself have not seen the right. press release, so it's kind of hard for me to comment. Yeah, and I mean, it is interesting that when you identify someone by their real name and then Banksy's people will get in touch with you, who knows what the inference there is. <laughs> Well, we, I guess, you know, we can look at it as a bit of confirmation. Right, though maybe Banksy's people are just concerned with keeping the mystery regardless of whether the person who was named was correct or not. Um, so let's go back a little to your, you know, your work in general. You've actually referenced a few times the formula, uh, the algorithm that you use, and and I think you're being a little modest because this formula is actually named after you. There is a Rosmos formula. Well, this was actually the focus of my PhD research, um, and to me, it's it's very um, exciting to do research in one area and you see it being applied to all these other areas. And it's, this is not the first time that Dr. Lacomer and I from Queen Mary have collaborated because our main work has been in the area of applying this in fields of epidemiology, zoology, biology, looking at you know shark um, hunting patterns or how bats find um, their prey or how invasive species spread. So sharks hunt the same way that graffiti artists paint? The same algorithm can be used to analyze the um, patterns We've, and like I say, it's been done on algae spread in the Mediterranean. It's been done on um, bee patterns when they're searching for um, flowers. It's been uh, used for bat foraging in Scotland, great white sharks off the coast of South Africa, and mosquitoes in Cairo. And that same principle holds that people are moving a little bit away from their home base to find a comfort zone, and that's the most likely spot for activity, and then it starts to drop off after that. Yes, and there's another factor, with, you know, without meaning to get technical or, or mathematical. We but can if do you, a little of that. If you actually consider anything, the number of potential targets, let's, let's think of a bee looking for a suitable flower. The number of potential um, flowers within a short distance from where the bee's hive is is limited. As the bee moves further away, the, the rings become greater in area, and that increases the number of potential targets. So you're actually going to get that same buffered distance decay function that we talked about before. Bees aren't worried about um, uh, anonymity. They, they, you know, they probably want to attack the closest flower. But the, those two geometric principles of an increase in opportunity in an uh, effort to um, minimize work or, or energy 
produces the same pattern we use in the geographic profiling algorithm. Give me a sense, especially with regards to criminal justice, how widespread your tools are being used. I mean, is this now something that's in the toolkit for most police departments? I wouldn't say most. It's reasonably widespread, but, you know, that's that's not to say that it's used all the time. Many smaller agencies, as you probably know in the United States, the typical police agency is very small in size, and they don't have you know, a real problem with serial crime. Who's resistant to your methods? Mm, I would say people that are resistant aren't going to be the ones that call, so I don't know. <laughs> but, but, but I'm just trying to get a sense of, do you ever go to a police department and say, here, here's my approach, and you get pushback? No, because I never try to insert myself into an investigation. I, I don't believe that works. So I only respond if someone's asking for help. And can you characterize your success rate? I mean, how do, what do you think of as, as a successful implementation of your, of your tool? Okay, let me be clear on one point is yeah. that no profile, geographic or psychological, solves a crime. You can only do that with a eyewitness, a confession, or physical evidence. So our goal is just to help make that search more effective and efficient. And we measure the um, the success rate of a profile by saying, okay, how much of the area covered by the profile has to be searched through before you find what you're looking for? And you would expect, by chance, that number to be 50%. So how can we improve upon that, or how much do we improve upon that with a profile? And we keep records of this, and the, the data shows about 3 to 5% of the area has to be searched through um, on average. So that's, you know... A, 10 to 20 fold improvements, which is actually fairly meaningful. But, you know, it doesn't solve the crime. It just helps the detectives get to what they're looking for faster and more efficiently. Let's talk about some of the kind of larger scope applications of this and what you feel like is next for for this work, because obviously you're not just there to unmask graffiti artists. We're, as we've discussed, not really interested in Banksy. Uh, what we are interested in is the ability of the geographic profiling methodology to analyze things like graffiti to focus in on someone's base. The reason that's important is we've done other research on the geospatial structure of terrorist cells, and we've noticed that in certain Asian and European cities, there's a lot of anti-government graffiti, pro-terrorism group uh, banners, leaflets, and it seemed to us that it would be a useful intelligence tool to um, keep a record of, of this graffiti. It's, you know, innocuous, just, you know, some painting on the wall, but it could provide a means to help support efforts to focus an investigation. So in the United States right now, they have something like a million people on the terrorism watch list. If we look at what happened in, recently in Brussels and in Paris, people that were known to authorities, but they weren't actually doing much with them. And that's because surveillance is incredibly expensive, time-consuming, and, and personnel um, and, and resource-demanding. So having a way to have some sense of to, to geographically concentrate your efforts would be valuable. And we thought this would be a useful tool. As a consequence, we've started to do some research analyzing such patterns. And, and one of our studies was we, we used data from the Second World War that was collected in Berlin. Um, we knew where the, the people had, who had left these anti-government postcards, that's what they did. They actually wrote them postcards and left them on streets or in the lobbies of apartment buildings. We knew where the postcards 
had been left. We knew where they lived, and we were able to accurately um, geoprofile their home. So this was another step in that direction. We look at graffiti. If Banksy is Gunningham, then you know the, the profile was quite accurate, and it's just you know a step in in the the use of geographic profiling to support counterterrorism efforts. But do you worry about the implications of identifying a particular geographic area as a you know hotspot for for terrorists? Well, I think that's done right now. But rather than just doing it on the basis of someone's um, ethnicity or religion, we're actually basing it on um, evidence. And, and data, and, and that's what we're going to I need to do if we want to avoid a lot of false positives. So rather than just say, oh, yeah, let's you know, round up everyone in the Muslim neighborhoods, let's actually see where stuff is going on that is pro-ISIS, for example, and then use that to concentrate. Now then, again, the same thing. This doesn't identify the suspects. It allows you to prioritize the suspects. You know, in Brussels, you saw that the Paris suspect, you know, over the course of weeks since the Paris attacks, moved like three doors down, right? I mean, there, the geography is such a critical part of this conversation. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for doing this. This is really fascinating work, and um, I appreciate you joining us. Okay, very good. You can find a link to Dr. Kim Rossimo's research on Banksy and more on our website. What's the Point's editor is Chadwick Matlin. Our video producer is Ryan Nantel, and we have studio help from Tony Chow. Joel Werner helped mix and produce this episode. Special thanks to Jonathan Yales for editing help this week. My name is Jody Avergan. You can find me on Twitter or email me at podcasts at 538.com with any comments or ideas about future shows. Our music is by Rishikesh Hirway, host of the Song Exploder podcast and the new West Wing Weekly. Both of those you should be listening to. You can find them in iTunes. You can also download a version of the theme he wrote for this podcast on our website, 538.com slash podcast. Be sure to subscribe to What's the Point in iTunes or your favorite podcast client and give us a rating and a review. The more ratings and reviews we get, the better we do in the rankings. The better we do in the rankings, the more people can discover the show. Thanks for listening. See you soon.